Welcome and thank you for tuning in to the Life with Behavior Analysis podcast. I'm your host, Miss J, and I hope that you enjoy today's show. Let's dig in and do life together with Behavior Analysis. Welcome to the Life with Behavior Analysis podcast. I thank you for taking your time out to listen today. I don't take it lightly that you chose this podcast. As always, please like, subscribe, and and share. (laughs) So today I have two amazing ladies that I have come to look up to in the field with us today. I have Miss Landria Seals-Green and Miss Vanessa Bethay-Miller, and I'm going to let them, they have so many accolades, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So whoever wants to go first, go ahead. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, it's true. I do. I've seen the work that you guys have done so far, and I'm like, I want to be there one day. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you have you. a podcast. Thank you. But uh, also, thank you for inviting us and allowing us to be here today and um, sharing your platform with us and your and the people who listen to you. So we appreciate it as well. So I am Landria. Seals Green. I am a duly certified and licensed uh, speech pathologist and board certified behavior analyst I'm from Chicago, but based in Michigan. And I am the founder of Momentum Autism Therapy Services, and we provide, you know, therapy, um, multidisciplinary services. And I am also the principal owner of uh, my own consultancy group. Um, and that's just Landria Green, where we, where I have provided workshops and uh, seminars and trainings and conference keynotes. So I keep that because I love teaching. Um, and I am also, what else do I do? I am the co-founder of the ABA Task Force. Right. Yes. yes. The yes. co-founder of the ABA Task Force. I need to update my LinkedIn profile. Right. <laughs> Right. Um, So Vanessa and I um, co-founded that together and it is, has been a beautiful thing. Um, And I appreciate lots of clinical work. I um, love clinical um, organizational behavior management. So clinical based OBM work is a lot of what I have also um, found a love and appreciation for. And um, In terms of some things that I do in my non-clinical time, I am one half of um, a new podcast um, called The Fancy Black Lady. I like that. (laughs) So I heard on another podcast that you have a song that you guys, that you're the voices behind for the podcast. Is that true? No, I do not sing in public. (laughs) Although I can carry a tune, it's just not something I do. I don't want to make anybody say, oh, let her sing a solo. No, I do not. (laughs) No, not me. Vanessa? Mm -mm. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I'm not not singing in public either. Well, in that case, I don't think anybody's going to sing on the podcast today. So I'm not singing in public either. So we're just going to keep it at that hilarious uh yeah so i guess i'll introduce myself so i'm vanessa um i'm also a board certified behavior analyst um based out of pennsylvania but i'm from new jersey and still do everything in jersey um i own uh, bethea miller behavioral consulting and we provide aba therapy um, to children 
and adults uh, with developmental disabilities or autism spectrum disorder. We also do a lot of low cost events for all children. So social skills groups, we have parents night out. We have a bunch of different stuff. Um, I also own Shaping Tomorrow Child Care Services, which is an ABA-based daycare and preschool um, here in Pennsylvania. And I'm the other co-founder of the ABA Task Force. <laughs> Right. Um, I also wrote a book called I Know What I Want to Be, and it's actually a book about a young girl who is exploring different careers in science before deciding that she wants to be a behavior analyst. Um, and I'm pursuing a PhD now. Um, I have to defend my thesis and then dissertation, and I'm, I'll be done after that. Um, I know you so can't pretty, wait. Yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, I'm also in a doctoral program and I'm I'm tired. I'm so tired. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it is. It's worth it in the end, I know, but I'm not at the end yet. So the end is in sight. It's in sight, but right. Ooh, it's a lot to get there. It is. It is. But we're going to get there. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get there. We have to get there. We're needed. We so it it's definitely a place that we're going to get to. Yes. Um, and gonna get to is not uh, grammatically correct, but that's how I feel about it right now. <laughs> we gonna get there. We are. Um, we are. <laughs> so today I wanted to talk to you ladies about, you know, implicit bias, what we can do in the field, what we're missing in the field, and just some of those in the light of what's been going on in the nation lately. What can we do as behavior analysts to further one, inclusion and diversity in our own field, but also to begin to push that into other areas as well. I mean, we deal with human behavior, so we're not beholden to autism or developmental disabilities. So what first are implicit biases? Yeah, so the implicit biases, so there's two types of biases. There's explicit and implicit. Explicit biases is more so related to like those overt behaviors that we see in the public, discrimination, harassment, all of these things based on um, actions or judgments, while implicit bias is um, more within us. And a lot of times we don't realize that we're being biased in some way. Um, and then you can take that one step further to kind of talk about implicit racial bias. And that just relates on, you know, your biases that are within you um, that you may have towards others based on their race or nationality. Um, a lot of times these implicit biases are re related to negative stereotypes. Sometimes they're good stereotypes, but a lot of times they're negative stereotypes. And we all have them. You know, you and I, you know, Landria, we are not immune to our implicit biases. Um, we may think things based on our learning history and how we've interacted with another person may frame how we interact with other people that are similar to them. Mm -hmm. um, so it's something that, you know, we're, we all have, and we have to take notice of. I think in our, in our field, and even when we talk about, um, with our clients, um, the impl implicit bias may creep up in how we, what we think different people are capable of. Mm. And, um, so when it comes to, um, you know, I, I remember, um, my, you know, my father was, was, was in the hospital. He had had an accident lately and needed to be hospitalized. 
And I remember the therapist saying to me on the phone, well, you know, he's, he's so functional. Um, he was so functional before. And I thought to myself, functional, um, you know, while I have my own um, misgivings and trappings about that word and how we describe people as being functional, especially when they're connected to somebody. Um, but to describe people as being um, that way and uh, measuring his ability based upon her um, perspective about what um, Black men were able to achieve. And so then I had to explain to her who he was mm. and once i had to after i explained to her who he was then her um, perspective about what he could then achieve became larger and so it's that implicit bias of what people expect us to have expect us to be um, and you see it in the field you see it all the time i mean you see it in the world right um and that's why I think the perception of, you know, uh, of how we are in the arts, um, you know, and different TV shows that we watched growing up were so important, you know, like it or not about the Cosby show, right? right. But that particular show and being able to demonstrate and show two professional people of color um, having... Um, you know, different accruciments, if you call it, and having a um, brownstone in Brooklyn um, kind of dispel, not kind of, it did dispel some stereotypes and then implicit biases that people may have held about um, Black people and us only being impoverished mm -hmm. with That's low reading true. scores. That's very true. Because I remember back in the day, I mean, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough yeah. <laughs> to remember, you know, watching a different world, watching the Cosby's mm -hmm. and watching all those shows that showed, you know, black couples um, in a committed relationship showing, right. you know, <clears throat> black uh, people um, or people of color in college, showing the Cosby, showing that, that family unit, owning the Brownstone, moving on up, if you want to call it that, like that. Um, being more than what traditionally has been held as a thought pattern of, oh, this is all that most Black people can or usually do. But now, I don't think that there's as many um, examples of that same kind of positivity that we had back then. I don't know if you guys see the same thing. Um, but I definitely don't see it as being as positive now, which kind of goes back to what are, what has been taught or what learning history has just something as simple as the media has, um, has perpetuated in, a, in the current climate before just things of that nature. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I definitely agree with that. There, there are a few shows, but I mean, there, we had way, we had way more back then. I mean, right. you, you can turn one channel and you get one show, you turn another channel, you get another show. Now you'd be lucky if you find one on Netflix, you know, Netflix exactly. is good with putting that stuff out, but you know, you go on Netflix, you might get a show. Um, there's a few, there's a few, but you're right. We don't, we don't have that. Um, out there. So I think a lot of times our depiction is either we're basketball players mm -hmm. or we're football players or 
we're singers or, you know, we don't have the view of other things sometimes. And that, and, and that's, I was talking with a friend just about, just in general about where you are located geographically and what is presented to you on the news, what you Mm -hmm. see on the news. It's going to, you know, if you live in, I live in Trenton, New Jersey, which is a city, and I watch the news. I'm going to see people that look like me. I'm going to hear about people that look like me doing things in this area. But if I live, you know, down south somewhere, I might not see that same thing, or it might be displayed in a different way. Exactly. Um, so that all plays a part too, and that all builds up our our biases. So you already said like the media plays a role in the biases that many people have. I mean, geographic locations. I've lived from uh, being a military brat. I've lived from this in the South. I've lived in rural Minnesota, outside of the city of Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul, where I was one of, I think it was six of us, six African-American or people of color in the whole uh, middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've lived in a lot of diverse places. I've lived over in Germany. So I've seen different, um, ways in which people interact with me being a person of color with other people of color, not just African-Americans, but, you know, those that are Asian, Hispanic, mm-hmm. Latino, Latino, Latino. Um, so how can someone learn if they have that implicit, that those biases? Cause some people honestly just don't from what I've experienced, don't realize that they have those biases or just don't know. And they use what they see or they look at the, just the things that they have to grasp from. And then they put, they put that onto the person that they're interacting with. So how do you know when you have biases? Do people really not know though? I, I, I asked that. I asked that because I, you know, I really think at a certain point. So we're talking about adult learners. We're going to presume that as behavior analysts, all of us, um, you know, there is a range of being neurotypical. But um, in terms of that range, you have, you know, completed your degree, your qualifying degrees, your certifications, so you fit in that category, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you work, you know, when you do this work, um, it is our job to, um, when you interact with people, whether the competencies um, suggest or, or mandate that you become culturally aware, the fact is, is that cultures um, exist before you. And, you know, if they're, you know, if there's six white people in front of me, I know there's six different people in front of me. Exactly. Right? And so that, you know, singularity doesn't seem to extend itself, you know, to brown and black people within our field. And so while as a group, we may appreciate black culture mm-hmm. in terms of the music, in terms of, you know, the the dress, the style, the, the finesse of it all, the... The, the fact is, is that sometimes we apply singularity to brown and black people and then um, individuality or multiple exemplars, if you will, to people who are non-black. And I, I would appreciate personally that when people meet me, they decide they've met me. Right. Now, when I stand before you, absolutely, I'm an African-American woman, but I don't speak for all the African-Americans. Right. But here's the thing. I know that. I, I know that. And so the responsibility is, is twofold. 
one, the responsibility is on the, the, the brown and black person to create boundaries and to be able to, to be able to verbalize those, those things and stop thinking you carry the weight of the culture and the world on your shoulder, because that's a, that's a huge weight. It is. Um, but also being able to, you know, say to someone if they're, you know, 30 million people, they're 30 million ways. Um, and using behavior analytic terms on behavior analysts, you know, has always worked, you know, sometimes if they're willing to listen. Um, but I, I, I just figured at a certain point when people read and are invested in learning something, mm-hmm. um, you, you, you behave and you interact with the world differently. And so it's about what are you reading? What are you deciding to, to put in your brain? Um, and, and does that influence heavily how you interact with the world? Right. And to add on to that, I, I don't know, there shouldn't be a situation where someone doesn't know that they have implicit bias. I, I, I don't, I don't buy that. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I don't buy that. Cause I know I have, I know right. I have implicit bias because of my experiences. Um, but I can see where someone may not realize that what they're saying or what they're, how they're portraying their behavior may be considered, you know, a bias. Um, but that's not to say that it's excusable either. Um, like Landria said that that's where you start to come into like, you know, you as the individual need to do your own research and figure out that baby, you know, what's going on with that. And then you Landria is right. We, as people of color, black people, um, minorities, whatever you would like to say, we do have to kind of start to stand up a little bit more and say like, no, this is not correct. And this is why it's not correct. And I know that's not easy either. So there's like that dual edged sword where, you know, I can defend myself and I can say something, but I can also lose my job. I can also have other issues that come up with that as well. So it's, it's hard, but I, we need to start off with, it's not a question of whether someone has implicit bias. They have it. Right. It's a question of now, I know I have implicit bias. Where are those biases? Where are those areas that I need to fix, you know, or work on for myself? And where should they start? Do you think? <laughs> I mean, there's so many different places I can think of, but where do you feel that they should start? Right. So, so there are some tests out there, like what is uh, Harvard has the implicit yes. association test. Some behavior analysts do not care for it. I will, I've, I've gotten that. Um, there's also the IRAP, which I think that one's more of a behavior, behavioral based one, um, but that's yes. the implicit relational assessment procedure. Um, the results are mixed on both. So these tests may be great at determining what your implicit biases are, they don't necessarily give you the steps on how into how to fix them or how to address them but it's it boils down to just asking yourself basic questions when you interact with someone what's the first thing that you think you want to say so like if i have i have been harassed at work if i come across someone that engages in very similar behaviors to that person and um does like it, it could be like extremely similar i might in my head be quick to think okay, this person's going to harass me again because this is what I've experienced in the past. But as the individual, we need to sit there and think to ourselves, okay, I don't know this person yet. I'm judging them based off of some, you know, something that's happened in the past or something that I've, that I've gone through in the past. How can I, one, tread lightly in, in, in your interaction, but also 
how do you interact with them without letting those biases affect your behavior towards them? So just like, how do you see people? What's the first thought you have when you see someone else, especially that's, that's different from you? Um, those are your biases. That's when they start to show up when you're in contact with people that are different from you. That's good. Yeah. Andrew. How does one identify that? Where, where do they begin? Yes. Where do they begin in identifying those biases? Like, where do they start? Well, formally, they can conduct the assessments that Vanessa has just stated. Right. Right? <laughs> you see my, my, that's sort of my beginning of a professor tone. They can conduct the assessments that <laughs> Vanessa has just stated. <laughs> However, for people, for, for, for people who may not um, be a, a fan of that, it's almost like, you know, it, can I just say pragmatically, if we would just have conversation with one another, then right. we would know if some, mm -hmm. you would know if you had implicit bias. And so it is not, um, you know, you know, what is the word? Um, out of the span of possibilities to, with a coworker, set up a time to have lunch or tea or go to, you know, have, you know, say, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring, you know, something for us to have together. Would you mind um, meeting me for lunch on the lawn or wherever, park our cars next to each other, however that works for social distancing and meeting <laughs> up and then saying, you know, I want to know more and I want to be a better person. Mm -hmm. I mean, can it, can it just, can we just do that? I want to know more. And I want to be a better person. Are there ways in which I have, you know, probably offended you and didn't even know I did or other people have? And because I want to know more and I don't want to do it again. Right. So I think the, the, you know, how does a person identify that they have implicit bias? I think when we talk about self-improvement, you know, self-improvement is, is a word in pop psychology that people use all the time. If you want to be a better person and improve yourself, start with the conversation. And it is not outside of the realm of possibilities to um, approach a person that you've not spoken to a, a whole lot, um, to forge a relationship and having a real conversation. But here is the thing. Do not have the real conversation with someone who needs something from you. Because right. they'll never tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. I watch this. I see this so many different times in our field. And I thought that person's not going to tell you the truth because they want access to your Rolodex. They want access mm -hmm. to who you know. You know, speak to a person that has nothing to lose nor gain. That's good. By that conversation. So mm -hmm. if we are, you know, on the same plane, it is a totally different thing now for me to see in this field of people who are reaching out to, pe to people who would, in a workplace, be their subordinates. Mm -hmm. And you want them to tell you the truth. They are not going to tell you the truth. And there's a the couple reasons why they're not going to tell you the truth. They've not come into the evolution of the truth for themselves yet. So they can't tell you what they don't know. Mm -hmm. And secondly, you know, they want access to what you what they think you hold. And so they're not going to say 
and give those honest answers. So if you're going to reach out to someone, make it someone on a commensurate level, mm -hmm. someone who is like you, because that's how I know, that's how my friends know, and that's how the people who, who discuss this behind the scenes as we watch, that's how we know you are really serious. If you keep bringing them up, because we're bringing them up too. They'll mm -hmm. never tell you, but we're bringing them up too in the, you know, behind the scenes. But, you know, ask somebody who really wants to tell you. Have a conversation. That's good. And I think mm -hmm. people are scared to have that conversation because they're scared of what they may hear when well, it's just dialogue. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and that's the defensiveness. Well, right. Good. You know, yeah. Like there's been times where I said something and one of my friends said, listen, like, uh, why are you saying that? No, that's don't say that. <laughs> like we can create, I don't know if that's just, you know, us as the black community, we correct, correct, correct each other. Right. Like if I see somebody, I'm going to correct you and you are going to correct me too. I don't know if that's just our upbringing and how we were raised. Um, I've been corrected multiple times. I didn't like it, but it is what it is. <laughs> look, 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 and it wasn't that it wasn't that corrective feedback you read about. No, it wasn't. Right, it, right. It was the kind of correction that made you like tough. So, you know, right. I, I remember I remember going into church. I thought I was so cute. And one of the older women at the church was like, come here, baby. And, you know, when somebody starts that, you're like, oh, what did I do? Yeah, exactly. So, That's the first thing you think. <laughs> listen, you, you cannot wear that. You cannot wear that slip. It does not work for, with that outfit. And so I know you think you look like somebody today, but today <laughs> you don't. And I was like, oh, oh, no. oh. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. So when you supervise and you give somebody feedback and while it's not that harsh, you know, you meet, you know, people who have been able to, um, I had a supervisee and no matter what I said to her, how I said it, uh, and I even pretended to be somebody else sometimes so I could, you know, say it in a way that would work for her. But it was like always these tears. And then it dawned on me that tears were a way for her to escape from mm -hmm. any type of critical feedback that she had ever gotten about her job and her previous supervisors would stop. And I was like, well, I'm not about to sign off on you becoming a behavior analyst because you are not ready. Right. And, you know, that, pr that probably ended our supervision relationship. And there was some other things that I had to complete as a, from a paperwork process, but there are people who are not uh, raised and reared for hard conversations. And mm -hmm. I think from a, a cultural standpoint, there are majorly many of us who are um, very um, uh, not, um, it's not confront very direct mm -hmm. in our mm -hmm. language and direct is not something that is um, smiled upon very much in our field. It, you know, it is very passive aggressive in terms of people right. and their interactions with one another. So from a cultural communication and linguistic standpoint, that direct language is almost aversive to mm -hmm. many people. And so um, if you ask me a question, I'm going to tell you the answer. But if you, in the words of my mother, if you don't want the answer, don't, don't ask, ask. Me. Right. 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 And that also goes that with right. Right. That <laughs> also goes with you know how sometimes we are considered to be more aggressive. 
yes. <laughs> or you know, oh, you, you know, you're, you're angry and it's not, I'm not angry. I'm just right. letting you know what the issue is. And I think that's, that's Landry, you made a good point. That's probably what it goes back to. Like they're not used to getting that feedback or they're used to getting feedback in a different manner. Um, I don't do well with passive aggressive. I hate when I get the passive aggressive emails because the first thing I want to do is call you. I don't want right. to <laughs> passive. You know, I, I'm very bad with that. Like, I will call you. Like, like, well, nope. What, 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 what's going on? With like, let's email? address <laughs> the issue. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's address yeah. the issue. Yeah. Um, but you, it gets frowned upon. I've been told that I'm confrontational because I don't want to email back and forth about what's going on. I'd rather call because, and then that's the other thing. I can't gauge what your, um. You're, you know, those, those, those verbal behavior that you engage in that are, are not always, you know, actually vocal. Mm -hmm. I don't know what your intentions are behind the email. I can't see your body language. I can't see that. So that's always been my approach, but it gets frowned upon. It does. It does. Mm -hmm. it, I've definitely run into that a couple of times. It was like, I'm not mad though. Like, what do you mean? At all. I am not angry. I'm actually very happy right now. Right. right. <laughs> but, but it's right. Just the tone and, and the delivery is, but it sounds so mean. And I'm like, what? Okay. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I can't, it's hard for me to fix that because that's just how it comes out. But okay, I'll try my best. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't always work, but I try. Yes. I will try. So for us as behavior analysts working with our families, our clients, how can we incorporate more inclusion and diversity? I mean, I have ideas, but what do you think we can do to combat these biases, to combat, you know, the fact that there aren't very many people of color in the field. So it's very whitewashed, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. What can we do? What are some action steps that we can take? Um, so, if, if I could tell a, a quick story. Of course. Okay. So um, when I was a speech pathologist, I, you know, I had a, 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 a specialty and um, my mentor was a um, doctorate level um, uh, special education person, black male. And we, he was the assistant director of special education in New Canaan, Connecticut. Now, New Canaan is a very, um, posh, very small area of the world. It's um, not far from Bedford, New York, not far from New York City, but there are no uh, fast food restaurants, no chains in New Canaan. So the Ralph Lauren store is the only store that Ralph Lauren himself would visit. So mm -hmm. it's that, that kind of neighborhood. So Steve Jobs lives in New Canaan. Harry Connick Jr. lives in New Canaan. These people live in New Canaan and their children attend public school. Okay. So it is a public school with a private school feel, mm -hmm. right? So um, I was coming in my first year um, there. My supervisor knew the kind of um, atmosphere I'd be stepping into because I was coming in as a speech pathologist for a small um, section of children who had very um, special needs and um, their parents were um, they were every, everybody's a high profile person my joke is that they taped separate wives in New Canaan and they really did so <laughs> they really did so um, I was coming in and my supervisor knew 
the kind of atmosphere that I was stepping into as a young professional. Mm-hmm. And um, he put in the newspaper my arrival um, and my credentials. He put that in the town newspaper so that people, it was like an announcement mm-hmm. that I was coming in as a um, professional in this particular town. And then he had an open house for parents to meet me outside of working with their children so that it would kind of ease my uh, transition Mm -hmm. and also help them become comfortable with who I was, who Mm -hmm. I am, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So while I had the pedigree in terms of I went to a very, you know, well-established school my transcript is, you know, those degrees and all of those things are great. My professional education, you know, I look great on paper. Um, and a person who is white, who has less, de- who is less degreed and coursed, did not need that introduction. They would have accepted her mm-hmm. or him for what they presumed that that person would come with. But my supervisor knew my mentor he was not my he was my supervisor and my mentor Mm -hmm. but more my mentor than anything else he knew what kind of atmosphere I was walking into so he did the newspaper announcement he did the open house which I attended and then on my this was all before my first day of work Mm. on my first day of work a mother walks in and she says, I came to watch you work with my child. Oh my. And that's what I said in my head. <laughs> <laughs> and because, because I'm a fan of Harriet Tubman, have always been a fan of Harriet Tubman and my mother and my grandmother um, have personalities to boot. I turned to her and I said, no, you didn't. I said, no, you did not. You came to learn how you can work better with your child, but you don't get to come and observe me. What was her and response? She, she was astonished. They called a meeting. They oh. called a meeting because how dare I have that kind of, they like, call an IEP, but how dare I have this type of um, response to her? And then she had her whole private team on the other side of the table. And again, I'm pretty well credentialed. I just chose to work at that school. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my background was better than the background of the people across the table from me, but I had to prove that I was there. But my mentor laid it out. He says, you don't get to observe. If you come to observe, someone needs to be next to you so they can interpret for you what you are seeing. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me as a professional, I have always been covered and sheltered by strong black people with high accolades who were just like, no, you're not. This is how she is. This is what she is doing. And if you have a problem with this, then I'm the next, I'm the boss. Mm -hmm. I'm the next person. So that's how I was bred and how I was raised. I don't necessarily see that in our field that, you know, that level of covering that we should have for each other because we know that there will be many families who will say or not say, I want to watch you work with my child and how they mask it is. It's not a fit. I don't think he likes her. Mm -hmm. I don't think we feel comfortable. Um, 
And, and, I, and all of those things are the subtle ways that families will say, you know, we, we just don't want this kind in our house. I'm uncomfortable mm-hmm. um, with, with this. And there are subtle ways, there are, you know, more, uh, there are louder ways that people say it. But what I would like to see in our field um, is that, you know, there is a level of covering that we provide to one another because we, that I had, that I, you know, blossomed under and mm-hmm. with, um, and that it just doesn't exist. But I will say that from a mentor standpoint, it's difficult to do it these days because right. there's no way that, you know, it, it's so many reasons why it's difficult, but, um, it is difficult to do it these days, but I wish that we did that for one another. I don't think I answered one question that you asked me. No, it, no, no, no. It's, it's good. It's I'm, glad. Good. It's no, good. I'm glad that you brought up that story because a lot of people don't understand the, the small, subtle ways that people try to, um, I don't even know what the, the term or the word I'm looking for is, but the small, subtle ways that people try to get to keep people of color from working with their child or to discredit what we have worked for, what we know our intelligence is. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned it. Yeah. Yeah. We, I think, I think, um, unfortunately, especially working with families, it, it does happen a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many times I, and, when, and there is a difference when you have a, a black owned ABA company, you are kind of in control of those things. So I know for us, it's, it's at the onset. When you come on board, you know that you are not going to discriminate against anyone based on mm-hmm. their race, their color, their gender. I don't care what it is. You're not going to do it. And you will be discharged if you engage in those behaviors. So like, this is like front page, you sign it when you get right. our services and this is what you get. And I have had to discharge people because of, behaviors like that like to the point I had a case where there were two staff on the case one was um white one was minority uh not minority she was um I think she was Hispanic I cannot remember right now I'm sorry but the family would badger this Hispanic woman like when I say like badger like corner her ask her questions and she's just the tech and we've told them multiple times you do not ask the tech these questions if you have these questions you ask the Mm -hmm. BCBA but it was almost like let me ask you these questions about what you're doing to see if you know what you're talking about, but never would bother the other family. And, and I've told, I, I think I warned them the first time before I finally uh, went ahead and discharged. But it was to the point, like the girl was afraid to go back. Like they, oh, like wow. the father would corner her and like the BCBA would be off working with the child or talking to the mother. And like the father would like trying to corner her and like, when's my child going to talk? When are they going to do this? When are they going to do that? And it's like, the BC, you, you've been told to talk to the BCBA. So like at this point, like, I don't know what it was. Um, and it was one of those situations I didn't realize at first what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you don't notice it at first. Right. So they're like the person that they had enough, they had an African-American person. They said that they didn't think she was trained enough, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. have you. So in this instance, it may have been like the person didn't have as much training. So I just took it as, all right, let's reassign. Now I put somebody else out there and now it's the same problem. Okay. So now this is not a staff problem. Right. <laughs> this is a family problem. Um, and so this, this is more so your you. Policy? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. Right. I've mm-hmm. met, I've, I get emails 
from technicians all the time who've been pulled off cases mm -hmm. because a white family was uncomfortable with them being present and the question of their training. And while I don't have, you know, you can't see all of the boxes have been checked, um, mm -hmm. but it's always interesting to me how the feeling that um, staff members have when they have not been supported by the company who clearly wants them off the case because of the color of their skin. Right. And that has been um, disappointing to, to see um, people not have policies that say that this is not some, a behavior that we will tolerate from families who do that, that we treat and that we serve. Yeah. And I, I think I, it was more so just two from I experienced it. I don't want to make my staff go into a situation where they feel like they're not wanted or that they're being discriminated against because it's, it's not right. Um, and we've all, you know, us as, you know, black women, we've felt that experience. Right. So that's why I yeah. don't want to. And then people don't realize there are also legal ramifications. I legally cannot send an African-American into someone's home and the family discriminates against them and does these things and allow it. Like there are legal right. ramifications. Yeah. I, I yeah. know that because I work in employment law, but what your family's, your clients do to your staff, you are responsible, responsible. for. Mm -hmm. And yeah. people don't realize that. And I think, shoot, if you hone in on that, people might start to change their tune with how they do things. Yeah, um. we've had, yeah, we, we, we've had black families not want a black male who they, um, who was identified as, you know, um, gay right. in their mm -hmm. home working with their son. So that was like, oh gosh, you know, just grow up a little bit. But, um, <laughs> but <laughs> and then, and then you have, you know, um, you know, then you have, you know, white RBTs and the family wants to listen to the RBT more than they listen to the black supervisor. Mm -hmm. Right, then right. Have, then you have scenarios where the black BCBA or the black new professional doesn't want to listen to the black senior professional because you are not accustomed to hearing um, factual information from people who look like you. So that's a whole nother dynamic. I mean, it's just, it's so layered. It's just layered. It's, it's layered. layers. It it's is. Layers. It's layered. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think to get, I guess, back to your original question. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. Like, no, the I'm conversation is good. Topic. No, the You're conversation is good. Keep it going. I'm sorry. No, no but you're hitting fine. on really it's, important things. It's all important. And it just supports why we need to have that inclusion and that diversity. We do need more people of color in the field. We do need more connections. I think that will also help the field as a whole. Um, we need other agencies. If you own an agency, you need to be you need to be aware of what cultural issues like we have a school district out here and they have no cultural diversity policies and the excuse that was kind of given was oh but they don't have that many minority students they only have one or two and i'm like if you go to school you should you you've learned this somewhere like right. this is, cultural diversity <laughs> is not random let's let's just be it's realistic. Not you've learned it somewhere and and almost a lot of people in a lot of states mandate those type of trainings so i don't know why this is not an excuse that oh because there's no uh, no black people at the school that's why they don't No, they need to have the policy regardless it doesn't matter exactly. it, it's not an excuse and it shouldn't be the black person's job to create those things 
because that's the other thing I see happening. Well, now, you know, we're demanding change. Now it becomes, all right, you want change here, come in, come in and talk to me and tell me what you want to change and how can we do it? And now it's like, that's your job. Now, I, now my job is to fix your problem as well as, you know, no, you need to fix your problem. You need to make money in your budget no. to, to address the issue. Y- right. yes, th- yes, they do. But people also need to understand their value. That's true too. And that's yeah. the yeah. thing. No, everybody's given all this information without compensation and without anything. You just said, somebody says, come into my office and tell me what I need to do. Well, then that means that in this I need- meeting, I need to make sure that the billable hours that I was going to do this week, including the prep for this meeting, right. you know, creating the policy for this organization is that, you know, understand your value, carve out what it is that you will do and show them how valuable you know you yourself to be mm-hmm. and say, I will do this. We can, we can meet on, you know, on this date um, during this time. And in this meeting, here's the agenda. This is what we plan to achieve. And then the follow-up needs to look like this, but in order for me to do this well, and for you to know what this, um, for me to do this well, and for you to understand how important this is, my day within this organization or the time that I dedicate within this organization now needs to look like this. People mm-hmm. need to understand their value, but why, when I, but, but you always, you also need to be valuable. Don't, right. don't just, you know, talking about anything and not only understand your value, but we all have different levels of value. So mm-hmm. if you know that you are, you know, a nickel, don't try to come in with quarter like policy. <laughs> you are beyond your capacity. <laughs> Right. That's true too. That's true so too. Yeah. Let's not, you know, in this in this era of, you know, let's figure out some things. Let's give birth to um, different organizations or give birth to different um, um, policies. You know, you want to understand what your capacity is, and if your capacity is limited in this moment, not because of you as an individual, but because of your breadth of knowledge, I think it's important to understand when you are overreaching because it's mm-hmm. going to look like a reach. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it's just, it, it's all very interesting to me to, um, to watch and to see. So I... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Y'all are just, when I say y'all are some powerhouses, Lord have mercy. I'm exci- <laughs> like, I'm over here just trying to contain my excitement because this is amazing. Um, but I'm going to hold it together. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so, but can I also, yes, I'm sorry. Can no, I no, also go ahead. add, you know, that knee in the, the knee in the neck that George Floyd experienced and, and died under, if we could make that symbolic for what that knee in the neck looks like from an HR perspective, Mm -hmm. what that looks like from a client interaction perspective. And then if we don't do a great job, those people, those brown people also have a symbolic death. Mm -hmm. That's very important to be able to understand that that young professional who is needing to gain, um, who is next to that um, person who is white, who holds all the power, is a symbolic knee in the neck because they still need something from you because they perceive that if they don't move and maneuver well enough, they will also die because of the reach that you have. It is very important that people understand the power that they hold or the perception of that power Mm -hmm. and 
you know, not only just opening things up to people, but also, you know, creating a space where you know that that might be how they feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that worries me. It worries, it, it, it concerns me deeply. Wow. Yeah. I don't have nothing to say to that <laughs> because it's, it's true. It's very true. So I have a question, um, mm -hmm. kind of in somewhat in that same realm, but not really. So in the weeks of, you know, in the initial days of George Floyd, it was a lot of talk about minorities in the field. It was a lot of mm -hmm. talk about what we should do and, and all of these different things. Well, a lot of that talk wasn't well received mm -hmm. within the behavior analytic community. And I saw a lot of people saying, oh, I can't support you know, this Facebook page or this particular group of people because they feel that because they're saying Black Lives Matter or, they, mm -hmm. or they're bringing up the fact that we need more diversity and inclusion. Um, not, and not just Black people, just, you know, for those in the LGBTQ uh, community, things of that nature. So why do you feel that there was such a big backlash amongst us um, as behavior analysts when we first started talking about diversity in the field? To, to be honest, I'm going to be honest, a little bit honest. I think I'm, I'm actually a little disappointed in a lot of the behavior, and like in that, what I have seen, because mm -hmm. I feel like as behavior analysts, we know, like if you can look at your client and they can engage in all these problem behaviors and they can do all of these things and you are so quick to defend them, you are so quick to make sure they are okay, you are so quick to work on their behaviors, you are so quick to address the issues. Why can't you look at anything else like that? Like that, that right. really, that really question makes me question um, some people as a practitioner because racism is behavior. It is. Police and brutality it, is behavior. And it These was are like, all it, behaviors. It, it, it was it, as if social justice was this, this no-no word, it seemed like. Right. It's like, what do you mean that you don't agree with social justice and you don't agree <laughs> with having this conversation that's needed, this conversation that's going on everywhere in the world right now? Like, right. What, I what made a mean? post like, how can you even be in this? Go back to Skinner's work. Go back and read Skinner's books read his work, read the research, read the research that they put out back then. And they did a lot of social justice research. They did. I know we, we have gotten very far in, as a field and I feel like we boxed ourselves in with, you know, autism. We did. Unfortunately, that p people that are newer in the field and some people that are, have been in the field too, don't see the benefits of behavior analysis. Like we, we scream to the world that we're a science and we should be treated as a science. But when it's time to use the science to benefit something, it's like no, this is this is not this is not socially significant. This doesn't matter. Why are we doing this? This is unprofessional. And like, I don't know what's going on. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. It is. It's frustrating. Um, people have to wake up. I don't know. And then I also think that maybe I know for myself, maybe I thought too highly of behavior analysts. <laughs> in this field not to say like you know we're better than someone or anything like that but you know it, it goes back to this is gonna this is it goes back to that you know that implicit bias this is the world that we live in and no matter what you are taught and how you engage it those implicit biases are still there right um, and look at how medical professionals like they might give a different treatment to 
a black person than they would to a white person based on their perception of what that person will um, take or be able to do. There's a bunch of research out there that talks about that. The maternal mortality rate, that's all related to practitioners not listening to black women mm-hmm. and their complaints. So it's, I guess it's not that far removed. So shame on me for thinking so <laughs> you know, highly of, of I our think field. I did too. I think I yeah. did too. I think that I initially, when everything began and the conversations started to happen, I'm like, yes, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, these, all these behaviors and we're going to talk about solutions and we're going to talk about all of these great things that behavior analysts can do that's outside of the realm of, of autism. And it's, this is going to be great. And then I read the comments and Mm -hmm. then I was very disheartened and I was downright upset because it's like, guys, why is this not important? You know, you want to scream from the rooftop. Why is this not important? Why, why do you not, why do you feel that this is not a socially significant thing that we should be concentrating on, that we should be, as scientists, we should be out there screaming, this is what needs to be done. We should be out there advocating, saying these things should be done. But it's like there was radio silence. And Well, listen, I don't want anybody out there advocating for me who doesn't believe in it. Exactly. That's true, too. So... I just, you know, the the thing is, is that I was not disappointed in the field of behavior um, um, analysis, not at all. I feel like we have done, um, the field has raised people who don't recognize themselves as people until much later. So mm-hmm. you see yourself as a practitioner, you see yourself as a BCBA, and that's how you think, that's what you do. I mean, it goes back to when people ask questions of, and they say things like, I know I'm a behavior analyst, but I can't get my kids to fall asleep. It's like, no, you're a mother who's right. tired, who can't get your kids to fall asleep. That's right, how right. you need to think about you and your life and the world and your the world around you. And if you keep putting your, if you keep wearing this mask of who you are professionally, you will continue to miss the mark you will continue to not be a human being. When human beings see something that is wrong, human beings have a response in, in, on the inside of them that says, this is wrong and we need to fix it. But right. if you are a behavior analyst and that's how you identify everything you are, because it takes a lot to become a behavior analyst. It does. But mm-hmm. let's be clear. It takes a lot more to become a neuroscientist. Exactly. Like a neurosurgeon. <laughs> so true. I just feel like, you know, remove, remove the ego, mm-hmm. remove the hat of a BCBA and be a person. And when you are a person, you're able to see this from a people standpoint. Now, if you then don't agree, then don't march. Don't advocate. Don't do all of those things. There are many of us who will vote differently many of us who uh, perspective differently, and that is okay. So I don't want, I don't think everybody needs to take um, hold of this um, arm that we have and march on because it's not everybody's fight. If all of us did the same thing, then there's no, there's no one left for autism. There's no one left for um, oppositional defiant disorder. Mm -hmm. So it takes everybody doing something, but it takes human beings. I remember last year i did a girlfriend's trip with my two college roommates and another person that we we all know each other Mm -hmm. in this group there are 
Um, there's an attorney for um, a retail big box chain store. Mm -hmm. There is an attorney for a university. There's a CEO of a hospital and me, mm -hmm. right? So all of us black women are taking this cooking class and um, there's four older white women in front of us and they're talking to us, right? Mm -hmm. And the woman then says, um, well, how do you all know each other? So she introduces how they know each other. And so my um, friend Stephanie says, oh, we, you know, we all went to college together. And um, um, the woman says, oh, you all got a scholarship. Oh, wait <laughs> we a minute. Thought, how did we get to scholarship? And we just, and, and even if you did get a scholarship, the fact that she thought that our gateway to college was the fact that we had been given this scholarship, because then she found out what school we went to. Oh, mm. you, oh you got a scholarship. It's like, because your parents could not have afforded to send you. And nobody is asking for anybody's tax returns, but it's that kind of right. subtle dip. So, I don't know. I think people have been, um, I don't know about anybody else. And I do know that all of us here have faced those types of subtleties when we go mm -hmm. into stores or when you go to purchase something or you take your kids to school or the neighborhood you choose to live in, or even the vacation you take and where you stay when you're on vacation, those things come up. So I didn't need behavior analyst uh, analysis to tell me that this was a problem. I didn't right. need behavior analyst analysis to tell me that this is something that I should do something about it because, you know, this has been um, in existence for a very long time. I am happy that a group of behavior scientists have said this is, you know, this is important to us. But, you know, let's think about it. NSBE, the National Society for Black Engineers, runs deep. And mm -hmm. if you think that the behavior scientist world is doing a great job, check out Nesby. I've been to their conferences. I've sat on there in their little private rooms and they're doing some remarkable stuff. So it's like, it takes all of us. Right. It does. Um, it does. But ABA didn't tell me that this was a problem. My vacations tell me that this is a problem. Right, right, right. <laughs> we, we know it's a problem. Right. But I right. think that's because we live with the problem. Um, and, and, you know, I always wonder why did it take George Floyd for people to realize like, this is a problem. Like we've when been, it's been a problem. We, right. It's been a problem. We've been fighting about this for, for years now. And I don't know if it was because it was the first situation where nobody could negate anything. There was nothing you can negate about that situation. Mm -hmm. And that upsets me too. Why, why does it take, you know, such an extreme case for now you to want to wake up and open your eyes and see, you know, what's going on. Um, there was so many cases. I mean, it's Amadou Diallo. There was Tamir Rice. There's other there was, a um, The girl in Chicago who was, I mean, just heartbreaking stories of children and adults who mm -hmm. have been, um, and they have been witnesses, but I just think it's just the time has come. It was a tipping point. And it was we a tipping all, point. It was a tipping point. And we were all in a pandemic. We were sheltering in place. Mm -hmm. So we had a moment to be silent. Mm-hmm. So right. here we are. Here we are. Unfortunately, <laughs> here we are. Unfortunately, unfortunately. So my last question to you ladies, because I know you guys are busy um, <laughs> and I do appreciate you. Lord knows that I do. Um, how can we keep the momentum for change going after the headlines and the people's focus shift to the next big thing? 
Um, the ABA task force is something that we are very committed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and our um, focus is to build an organization with legs that are strong and is sustainable beyond Vanessa and myself. Mm-hmm. So to keep that conversation um, at the forefront of, you know, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, when we talk about who's on the boards for our organizations, mm-hmm. when we talk about conference planning committees, who's there, um, when we talk about um, being able to make sure there's cultural competencies within our code of ethics, um, helping to create that and what it should look like. Um, and then providing behavior scientists with tangible things to do. So when we go to the next um, conference, we don't just have data uh, that looks great because we love data, but it's data based upon what I did as right. a behavior mm-hmm. analyst and my impact. So that is our, that is what we are focused on. Um, that is our goal. And while we understand there are many other organizations that have existed prior to us uh, forming, um, our goal is to make sure that we continue to um, make sure that the ABA task force is present and that we are partnering with other people in order to um, move this forward. So there is, it's more than a conversation, it's more than a moment, um, a sustainable organization that is here for us. Yeah. Awesome. So before we go, um, any lasting comments? And also, um, how can people find you guys? Uh, so my Instagram is at BCBA underscore Ness, N-E-S-S. Um, and then if you go on that page, you can email me from that page. You can follow me. You can do whatever you like. Um, I try to reply to everybody when I have time but (laughs) lately it's been crazy um uh also we did create a aba task force uh website and we have a facebook page as well now so you can go there to learn more about you know what our goals are and what the future holds for us um the task force meeting is this friday june 19th juneteenth at 4 p.m eastern standard time so definitely sign up and learn more on to you, Andrea. <laughs> oh, our website. You gave the website? I did. I did. Yeah. So okay. how can they find you? Oh, they can find me. I am Landria. I am the SLP guru on Facebook. Um, I am. I've had that handle for a long time. I'm the SLP guru on Facebook. Um, I'm also on Instagram. And yeah, that's where I am. Awesome. So thank you. Find me. Thank y'all so much for coming on today. I appreciate it. For everyone listening, don't forget to visit the website at uh, lifewithbehavioranalysis.com and find us on Facebook at life underscore with life with ABA rather (laughs) on Instagram and on Facebook. So we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live with behavior analysis podcast don't forget to subscribe and share also make sure you check out our website for more content 
see you next time. Bye!